Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Uh, my wife Amanda and I uh, bring you greetings from Calgary, Alberta in western Canada. Um, if you think it gets cold here, you haven't seen the weather patterns in Calgary, Alberta. It's, it's been minus 20, minus 30 degrees for a lot of the winter and, uh, and thick snow. So it's, it's nice to come to Aberdeen for some sunshine and warmth really. Um, and, and we do always enjoy uh, being with friends in Scotland. My, my wife's side of the family on our mother's side are, are from Dundee, uh, so we, we love the Scots and we, uh, we love being in, in this land. Um, I'm going to uh, preach from Psalm 1 this morning, and so I'll read the psalm, I'll pray briefly and then we'll, we'll dive in. It's Psalm 1, a very well-known psalm, as, as David's already spoken about it. It's probably one of the first psalms you even learned uh, off by heart, so... Let me read it for us. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that by the power of your Spirit you will illumine our minds, you will warm our hearts and you will bend our wills to, to your word and to your way. Even point us to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we find all hope and all life, in whom we find forgiveness of sin and we realise ourselves children of the living God. Help me now to preach your word clearly. Help us all to be humble under it, that your son would get the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Psalms. The Psalms um, are good to look at because the Psalms address all of life and so they address the whole person um, to the end that the whole man or woman praises God uh, with variety and complexity. So, uh, Psalm 150 ends like this. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So there is this kind of uh, totality to the praise, uh, a completeness at the end of the book of Psalms, a completeness of the psalmist's happiness in God. That's the, the context. Happiness in God. Worship of God. And it seems to me that the happiness of man is, is the great interest of man, isn't it? Ever since paradise was lost in Eden and Eve took that forbidden fruit because she thought it would bring her greater happiness. The, the world has been looking for happiness because 
the world is, is so unhappy. Every advertising ploy promises happiness, doesn't it? From food to sporting fame, from selling clothes to selling sex, from weight loss to weight lifting. The promise is this, this will make you happy if you go down this route, if you buy this product, if you do this thing. Everyone is looking for happiness. There is nothing new under the sun, as the book of Ecclesiastes says. People want to be happy, don't they? They want to be happy in a fallen world. Solomon, who had more stuff and comfort than any of us will ever have, says in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Divine lasting happiness is hopeless. That's the discovery of, of the world. To find lasting happiness is this vain exercise. And you know, some of the unhappiest people are the ones that you think have the best circumstances. They're the movie stars. They're the, the athletes. And, and they have these massive highs. And then when they come down from them, they have massive lows. And they're so unhappy. And I know that from the fact of even the job that I did for, for 20 years and the, the sport that I've been involved in for so many years. I, you know, I played with, I mixed with some of the best athletes of a generation and I saw all the talent they had, all the success they had, all the money they had and yet at the end of it, they were so unhappy at a deep root level. According to Time magazine's May 2018 edition, the number of children hospitalised for thinking about or attempting suicide had doubled in less than a decade, according to a study published in Paediatrics Journal. And we just know, don't we, over the last couple of years, how this pandemic has taken a toll on, on people's mental health and their sense and state of happiness. People are unhappy with their sexuality, with their finances, with their jobs, with their relationships. And many of those who say they are happy, they don't have true happiness because the things they place their happiness in can all be taken away. They have no happiness beyond the things in this life. And yet Ecclesiastes says, God put eternity into a man's heart. But the problem is people are looking for eternal value in temporal things. And so they're left frustrated, hopeless, unhappy. So then what happens is, as this life begins to wane, if all you have is this life, you have no solid joy, no lasting joy. You say with the world, let's eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Psalm 1 begins with this phrase, blessed is the man. Happy is the man, we could say. So there's hope, friends, here. It is possible to be happy in this world, but only if you follow God's prescription for happiness. This is what it's saying to us. And that's to realise that true happiness is not found in our circumstances, but in our relationship to God and who we are in Him. That's the conclusion of wisdom in Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole, whole duty of man. Then we can begin to experience true happiness and true harmony in all of life and in all of our 
relationships. So today, we enter the Psalms through this gateway, through this wisdom psalm, Psalm 1, and I want us to see uh, the marks of the happy or blessed man. I want us to see four things. I want us to see, firstly, his separation. Secondly, his devotion. Thirdly, his irrigation and fruition. And fourthly, his destination. So, some shun words for you on a Sunday morning. It's easy to, to remember. First thing to see is his separation. And you can see it there in the text. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. We see what he has separated from, what he is not. God's prescription for true happiness and his description of the happy man begins with a negative, interestingly enough, a, a, a not. The blessed man walks not in the counsel of the wicked. True happiness or blessedness is found not in the things of the world. You need to look elsewhere, not there. That's what he's saying. The blessed man does not walk and then he does not stand and then he does not sit. So the question is, why the not? Why the not? It's interesting, isn't it, that, that popular education and pop psychology, uh, which has entered much of modern parenting, I would say, it says that it would be damaging to self-esteem to say no to people, to give them nots. But that isn't the way of the Bible, is it? The psalmist says the way to be happy is to begin with a not. And so many of the Ten Commandments say, do not. Now, of course, no isn't the, the only thing the Bible says. God is a, a God of many yeses. God is a, is a generous, lavish God. But God says there are some things you cannot do if you want to dwell with me. Because failure to heed one do not in Eden led to separation from me and all the maladies in the world today. Think about that. So why the not? Because the Bible's realistic. The Bible doesn't believe in the goodness of man. Everybody is sinful. Everybody's going in the wrong direction to start with. And there's no hope of happiness for anyone unless they realise they're wrong about everything. So friends, the Bible doesn't affirm you. It diagnoses you. It doesn't affirm you, it, it diagnoses you. And God says in his word, if you want to be truly happy, according to my prescription, then realise you're going wrong and stop. What is it that God says in the Old Testament to Noah, in the book of Genesis? He says, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's God's diagnosis, not, not mine. The New Testament, the Apostle Paul, says the same thing in, in Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So why the not? Because people judge the ingredients for happiness by what they see in the world, not what they read in God's Word. That's why God says, no, no, not, not, not like them. Don't be like them. 
So there needs to be the, the, a consistent no to certain things in your life if you want happiness. Um, we need biblical boundaries, just as, as all children need boundaries. You know, kids need boundaries, don't they? They need to be told, no, don't do that. and Don't go there. And you need to, to hold them back. We, we've got a little grandson. He's one year old, one year old now, Charlie. And, you know, he's a little dynamo. And if you don't hold him back, he'd be off and down that street. Be gone. He'd go astray. We'd go astray. Hurt ourselves. And then children become a nuisance to others. So they, they need boundaries. And God gives us boundaries as his children. God's no's give true freedom and true joy. Because like children who know their boundaries, God's children feel safe and free then to do what their father permits. Now, I want us to look exactly at the true happiness or, or, or the blessedness of the man, what, what he does not do, what he separates from. So that the happy man walks not in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, he doesn't listen to the rhetoric of the world. It is subtly deceptive, you know, how much the church is influenced by the advice of the world. But, you know, it's not just the, the rhetoric... Uh, not just the speech of the of the world here; it's the aims and the and the principles of a wicked world. Those who are not Christian, because the world trusts in its own intelligence and power, and not God's power and wisdom. Worldly knowledge is is derivative; it's, it's contingent; it's not original. God is is the only original one. And yet, friends, such is the pull of the wicked and the deceitful schemes of Satan, and even the remaining sin in our own hearts, that we are in danger of beginning to walk in the counsel of the wicked if we're not vigilant, if we're not watchful. You listen enough to it and suddenly you become desensitised to its wickedness and you begin to walk with the idea. Walking in the counsel of the wicked then begins in the imagination but the happy man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Also, the happy man does not stand in the way of sinners. That is their sinful way of living. It's a sinful lifestyle. What you could not stand the, the thought of, you, you now stand the thought of and you begin to travel uh, on its way. And it's a broad way and it's an easy road and there's loads of fellow travellers on it but it's a way that leads to destruction. The happy man is not so. He, he's a friend to sinners, but he's not intimate with sinners such that their way is his way. He's not standing in the way of sinners. And also, the happy man, as you see there in the text, does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So true happiness, then, is, is found in not sitting in the seat of scoffers. Though these, are, these are the God-mockers. These are the ones who are so indifferent to God that they even hate divine things. They're mockers of creation and marriage and morality and, and what's decent and honourable in the eyes of God. They call good evil and they call evil good. They're often clever and, and powerful and popular and even make fun of Christians and Christianity. And some of you may have even received that kind of mocking uh, for your stand in the Christian life. 
And these mockers attack Christians by saying that Christians are immoral and Christians are people haters and Christians are even lawbreakers. Look at the way our society is going now, that, that to be a Christian even and to stand on biblical principles, even pr- principles on issues of sexuality, you could be called immoral and a, a lawbreaker even. So what happens is Christians lose reputations and jobs and freedom of speech because of the scoffers. And that's not the happy man though. He, he will not sit in that seat. Now if you're looking in carefully here, if you're, you're looking carefully at the text, you'll see the development of sin and spiritual failure here. Walking, standing, sitting, You walk at first, you you listen to and you toy with sinful ideas. It's maybe not visible to others at this point. But soon you you stand. You're standing then in the the habit of sin. It's now become a lifestyle. Now it's visible. And finally you sit. You're stuck. You're rooted. You're, You're addicted. Very difficult to shift. And you even begin to teach others your ways, as Romans 1 says, approving of those who practice them. Look also how sin is like, like creeping paralysis, walking, standing, sitting. You've got motion to motionless, crippled by the effects. And so friends, the truth is sin never ends well. It never ends in pleasure. Oh, it, it promises pleasure for a moment. But then the poison begins to creep through the soul and it doesn't end well. And so the question really at this point is is to say or ask yourself who and what influences you? Most of you are are mixing in the world during the week, you see. Of course, as Christians we're not called to withdraw from the world and and live like, like monks, maybe in a mountain monastery somewhere. And we're called to be in the world but not of the world. Jesus says to be salt and light. Not to be influenced by it, but to influence it instead. Remember Jesus, when uh, he touched the the leper, the leper didn't infect Jesus. The leper was cleansed by Jesus. That's a good picture even of of maybe the way that we should be in the world. So the, the point is to avoid intimacy with worldly influences. Remember the proverb, whoever walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. You'll be harmed, not happy if you walk with the world. So this psalm is is very clear. I think that's why so many people like the psalm. It's, It's clear. There is a difference between saints and sinners, between holiness and wickedness, between the righteous and the ungodly. There's a clear line. You are in one camp or the other. There's an in and there's an out. Don't forget that. Eternity and, and this psalm will bear witness to it. That's why as we, we enter the book of Psalms, God puts this no at the entrance, as if to say that the happy man who's going to praise me and, and worship me and, and enter my courtyards, the happy man is going to separate himself from the influence of the world. Otherwise, he can't come in. Life under the sun is vanity. If you are looking for lasting happiness on a horizontal level only, unconnected to God and and all of his gifts, 
you will be unhappy, you will be unfulfilled. Why? Because everything here is passing away. It's passing away. What does the Apostle John say? Do not love the world or the things in the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's passing away, friends. And so, again, look back over the last couple of years and see things that have passed away. So many people now have been confronted by what they're really putting their happiness in. And, you know, is it my fitness and my health? Well, no, look what's happened to people's health in the last couple of years. Is it my money and my finances? Well, look what's happened to job situations and and finances for so many people. Is it my friends and family? And, of course, so many people haven't been able to see each other, not been able to rely totally on those things for their happiness. We need happiness that's going to last. We need happiness as big as the God who gives it. And and it's only when we recognise that, or discover it by experience even, this temporary nature and the emptiness of things in the world, that then we can begin to look for our joy and happiness in another world. And then we can be truly happy in this world, in this world that we live in. We can enjoy the things in this world because we see them as temporal gifts from God. And that then results in thanksgiving to God. But they are not God. They are things and gifts from God. And, and that's what the blessed or happy man does. He, he does not seek his satisfaction in this world. He, he seeks it in the word of God. We see that the ingredients for true happiness lie in his separation. That's the first mark of happiness. And then there is the second mark, his devotion. We've had the negative, now the positive. You see it there. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the next mark of the truly happy man is what he devotes himself to. Only to say no might moderate a person's behaviour to some degree, but it will only do that. It won't give them happiness in God. But the blessed man separates from ungodly instruction and devotes himself to God's instruction. To the Torah here, but but to all of Scripture. And notice he delights in the law of the Lord. He, He loves it. Here is his happiness. Friends, you may remember maybe when you were saved and and, and, and God breaks through into your life and suddenly you begin to delight in God when before you, you never did. I certainly remember that as a, a young 18-year-old. You know, I was saved, born again, and, and suddenly God and the things of God became my great delight. Football used to be my God, and then Jesus became Lord and Saviour. And my great delight was was in him, was in his word. And, and surely God, God must affect your emotions. You know, it's not enough to know the word of God. We must love the God of the word. We must love the God of the word. What a powerful, righteous, holy God he is. What a sinner I am and how I deserve his judgment. How merciful he is that his own son would die for my sins, that I might be forgiven, that I might be saved. What a thing. 
uh, and to delight in the word of God also means to, to recognise the authority of that word and to submit to it. You know, the devil knows the word of God better than all of us, but he doesn't submit to its authority because he doesn't love it. Now just take a moment maybe, here's a little exercise for you, just to reflect. You might be growing in your Bible knowledge, but are you growing in your Bible obedience? Question, how has last week's sermon changed you in a practical way, however small, in a practical way this week? And you're thinking, I can't even remember last week's sermon. David's thinking, he can't remember last week's sermon. But it's true, isn't it? So often, even if we preach a sermon, that word that we know and we've heard hasn't translated into our life, hasn't changed us. We haven't become obedient to the word. Maybe we just like to talk Bible and and look clever. Or, Or do you say, this Christian life is all of grace, I don't need to obey God's law. Well, no, you, you don't. Not for your justification, you don't. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, the Bible says in Romans 10. Jesus says, I fulfill the law for you, and what a great and freeing thing that is. But he says, I don't come to abolish it. And so we look to Christ and not the law for our, our salvation, and yet in Christ now we're driven back to the moral law to train us in, in godliness as we seek to obey now by faith from being in the position of acceptance from God as his children, perfectly loved, secure in that love, now we can obey. So so antinomianism, anti-law, in other words, is anti-Psalm 1. And it's anti-Bible. And it's problematic in the church today. Then there's a lack of discipline, which leads to ungodliness. And it's just something to be aware of. I know this is a well-taught church. But it's something to be aware of, even as we urge one another on to become students of the Word. And think of it like this. If Jesus, Jesus saved you, and you love His Word, why wouldn't you want to obey the Ten Commandments? Jesus did. His delight was in obeying the law of the Lord. Also, also notice that this devotion manifests itself in habitual meditation. On His law, He meditates day and night, habitual meditation. And now if your biblical antenna are up at this time in the morning, you might be thinking of God's instruction to Moses' successor Joshua here, when he says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. Joshua 1, verse 8. God says, meditate on my word. This word for meditate means to to chew over or to mutter. And so muttering the scriptures back in the day was a common practice. Actually, it's good advice for you. Do you know what it's like when you sit down to do your devotions or your your quiet time and you start open the book and you're sitting down and then your eyes are crossing, you start to fall asleep. Now, if you were to stand up and start reading that out loud and walking around and muttering the word of God, you wouldn't fall asleep. Be careful where you do it, but I do recommend it. You might not want to do it on the bus, going into work in the morning, but in your private time. Meditate. 
True meditation. Muttering the scriptures. And as you do, you set the scripture in your mind. The verse, the order, the meaning, the application. And so what happens then is you begin to hide the word of God in your heart. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 119? I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Young men in here, answer me this question. How how will a young man keep his way pure? Of course, the answer comes from Psalm 119. By guarding it according to your, that is God's word. Don't meditate on your iPhone or PlayStation. Meditate on God's word. Let it sink into your mind. Don't let it depart from your mouth. Mutter God's word. Don't grumble against God's word. And make it a regular habit. Well, that's not cool, people will say. That's not cool. No, what's not cool is a generation of directionless insecure young men who don't fear the Lord. That's what's not cool. And it's the same for young women. And it's the same for all of us. What do you meditate on most? What's on your lips most? What are you muttering about? And even answering those questions will tell you a lot about your state of happiness in the Lord. Now what to do if you're not doing this? What to do if you're not meditating on on God's word regularly? Well, Well, get started and be regular. Get together with someone else in the church, maybe an older man or older woman, to kickstart your, your meditation on the law of the Lord. So takeaway is get muttering. Get muttering when you leave this church today. You see, when, when the word of God then breaks into your life, and, and maybe I don't know who's here today, maybe it's doing that for the first time right now, maybe it's doing it in a fresh way, even awakening you right now. When, when that happens, when it happens for the first time, you become a Christian, God it takes you and, and puts you into the big story of what he's doing in history and suddenly you've got a place and a purpose and an identity and a security and isn't that what everyone's looking for? This identity and security. And all these things then can never be taken away from you never be taken away from you. Take everything in this life from the Christian and the Christian has security. Why? Because the Christian has God and he delights in the law of the Lord who makes him wise for salvation and he boasts of the pleasures of the gospel. Let the world see your pleasure, friends. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him. Enjoy him. Enjoy him forever. We need to show people our joy. Our joy in the Lord. Look at this blessed man. He delights in God's word. You're meant to enjoy God. The psalmist says, end of Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. At the right hand of God, you see, are pleasures forevermore. But what is at the right hand of God? That's the question, or should I say, whom is at the right hand of God? Who is at the right hand of God? Of course, it's it's Jesus. He is our lasting pleasure. Stephen is our eyewitness when he saw him at the right hand of God. Remember Stephen, the the first martyr, as it were, Acts 7. He sees that vision of Jesus. Paul confirms that God 
raised Jesus from the dead and seated him, where? At the right hand of God. And so he directs us in Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And the psalmist in Psalm 110 guarantees his final rule and victory when he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put all enemies under your feet. In Jesus, there is happiness because of who Jesus is. He is the source of happiness. If you want to be happy today, all you need to do is reach out to Jesus in faith and you will have pleasures from God that last. He gives them to you in His Son as a gift. And because it's God who gives the pleasures, you know that the pleasures will last. They are pleasures forevermore. And they're also portable pleasures. So, these pleasures are with you in Christ always, at all times, in all circumstances, wherever you go. And so we see here then in the psalm that the happy man is known for his, firstly, his separation from the influence of of sinners, and secondly, his devotion to the Word of God. So we've been told what not to do. We've been told what to do and then like any good teacher the psalmist gives us an illustration a bit like when my dad was teaching me to play football he said no don't kick the ball like that kick the ball with this foot like that and then he showed me by illustration of how to do it and and here the good teacher gives us an illustration and this is why preachers love this psalm because they don't have to think up their own illustrations. It's right there in the text for them. It's the third mark of happiness, his irrigation and his fruition. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. He is like a tree. This is what David was talking about. A tree. And, and the first thing I want us to notice is that he is planted. It is done to him. You are not born a believer. You are not born a Christian. God chooses to make you a Christian. He plants you. You're not a Christian by the family you're born into or by going to church or doing good things. God saves you by transplanting you from one place to another. The blessed man is planted. A tree doesn't plant itself, does it? Someone else plants it, which means also that the tree is owned by someone else. Chosen and taken from one place and secured in another. And then sustained by someone else. Like the Christian, owned by and cared for by his heavenly Father, bought by the price of Christ's own blood. So God picks you up and plants you and suddenly you realise, I've got purpose, I belong. I've got security. You're planted and rooted then in God's unchangeable love as a child with a father. So where is your security today? Where is your identity? Well, I want to say this to you. You can never really feel secure if you don't have God because everything you belong to is going to last for a while and it'll be gone, as I said, passing away. But not the happy man. The happy man's planted. And look where he's planted. By streams of water. So the idea here is of artificial channels of water that irrigate the tree. 
That's what the structure would have been like in, in the ancient world. These artificial channels of water that irrigate the, the tree alongside these canals. And, but the point is here, for us, is that we need supernatural, not natural irrigation. Irrigation by the Holy Spirit is what we need, through, through, the, through the Word of the Spirit. And, and you know, don't you? You know the, the people that are, are irrigated supernaturally, the spiritually minded people. They're the ones who have this internal spring of, of spiritual life. And, and, and what happens is their patterns of thoughts of God are regular and they're repentant when they sin. And there's this inward principle of spiritual irrigation which means fruition. So they are fruitful people. And the happy man is irrigated, therefore he is fruitful. Now what is, what is fruit? What is fruit like? Well, fruit is it's beautiful and it is visible. So there is visible fruit of Christ-likeness in the Christian's life. Others will see it. Others will see it. And fruit also tastes sweet to others. So, do you taste sweet to others? Because your fruit serves the good of others. Christ-like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and so on. And you see this fruit is yielded in its season. In its season, that's to say it's mature. It's timely. So the mature Christian then has a sense of appropriateness. They're not loud or rude. They have things called Christian manners, which proceed from the fruit of humility. Manners that that consider another person more significant than themselves. I think sometimes we make easy excuses for people when we just say, well, they're socially awkward. And of course, there's different personalities, of course. Oh, but they're just socially awkward, we say. Well, maybe they lack manners at times because they're too self-absorbed to consider what might be appropriate behaviour in a given situation. But you see, the Christian should be growing in the fruit of Christian manners so that he or she might be able to mix appropriately in different company and like Jesus, walk with kings or commoners with an ease, all for the sake of the gospel. Or say with the Apostle Paul, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So the fruit of the happy man then is also seasonal because he continues to produce fruit in different seasons of life. So consider here today, we've got lots of different ages here today. Consider your season and how you can be fruitful accordingly. Now there are there are freedoms and responsibilities that you have as, as a Christian then that, that differ slightly when you're in the season of life as a, as, a, as a young person to when you're older, when you're single to when you're married and so on. So how can you be fruitful according to the season of life you're in? And, and then there's this little phrase, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. In other words, this happy man perseveres. The life in him is eternal life and, and so he cannot die as it were. He's evergreen. Jeremiah uses that image in Jeremiah 17. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. 
for its leaves remain green. So through trials and suffering, the blessed man or the happy man still grows. And isn't that great hope for us as Christians? And isn't that a great witness to the world that, that in the trials of our lives, in the many pains that we suffer, we're still growing in the winter season of your life as a Christian, as an old Christian, you are still fruitful as the outer man fades, the inner man strengthens. What a great picture that is. What a hope for Christians as we age in this life. So here is a picture of the happy man, rooted, secure, solid, fruitful, mature and persevering. In contrast, look at the wicked man. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Thirty words here in the English to describe the blessed man, fourteen words to describe the wicked man. In other words, he has no substance, no security, no fruit. And it's as if God just pops the bubble of the world's pride and says, oh, him, not so. Blown away. Chaff. No maturity, no longevity. For all of his boasting, for all of his power and skills and cleverness, for all of his influence and fame in this life, he is just blown away like chaff. That's why it says he will not stand in the judgment, because he cannot stand in the judgment. He has no substance. He, he won't be able to carry his cause, as it were, before God. He won't stand in the judgment. He won't stand in it because he... He won't stand in the congregation of the righteous now. And you see it with many people. They cannot stand the word of God. And so they sit and they wriggle and they, they want to get out from under it. They want to get away from the church. They, they cannot stand it and they won't stand with the people of God now. And so the way of the wicked will perish. Not might, but will. Hell is as definite as hell. Hell is as definite as heaven, friends. And and so this separation now points to a final separation. A final separation to come and there will be no second chances given. The wicked can't enter the happiness of God in the worship of God in heaven because they have no substance, they have no solid joy. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis has this picture with his sanctified imagination, the, the way that only... C.S. Lewis uh, can write and he, he sees everything in heaven, the grass and the rocks and the trees and the water as, and this is a quote, as much solider than the things in our country. Much solider. Randy Alcorn, American writer and pastor, comments about this. The grass is sharp and hard. To fit into heaven, these people, and they, they, they come to heaven... Uh, they come to heaven as, as kind of like phantom type people. These people must become not less solid, but more. They must move from being phantoms to having weight and substance. They cannot live there and neither will they want to. See, the unbeliever doesn't have this solidness. He doesn't have the, he doesn't have the fruit of Christian substance. And so in Psalm 1, there is now a reversal. The happy a righteous man is described by lots of words and the wicked man by just a few in the tree illustration. But now it's reversed in the description of the destination and the fourth mark of happiness. So we've seen the first 
mark is his separation, the second his devotion, the third his irrigation and fruition, and then this fourth mark, his destination, and this, this brief comment, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That is his destination now. His destination. This is the fourth mark. The Lord knows the righteous. And that is enough, friends, to make you happy. That's enough, isn't it? That the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Not even primarily that you know him, but that he knows you. He cares for you. He cares for you. Your, your name is on his heart. If I was to knock at the door of Buckingham Palace and say, I know the Queen, I'm not getting in. But if she's strolling by or riding by on a horse and she sees me and says, Oh, Gavin, I know him. I'm getting into the palace. Right? That he knows you is enough. And to those who have rejected God or faked Christianity in this life, he will say, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, I never knew you. I never knew you. The powerful mockers won't stand. They're going to melt away under God's judgment. But to you, and here's a great encouragement to you. I don't know how you've come here this morning. Maybe you're just hanging in after a really difficult week and you say, I'm just about believing. But to you, the weakest believer in here, those who are like the blessed man, he will say, I know you, my child. You trusted me to the end. Enter into the joy of your master. And that's the end of the matter. Wisdom says, consider the end of the matter. That God knows you. God knows the righteous. question is, who are the righteous? Well, the righteous are those who trust in the Lord for forgiveness of their sin and live in his constant care. Of course, Jesus, being a good Jewish boy, would have known this psalm and he would have probably memorized this psalm. And here's the irony. Jesus was the only truly blessed man, the truly happy man, supremely happy in the Trinity, beloved of the Father from eternity, and the only truly righteous man who ever lived. And, and as a boy, as he memorized this psalm, maybe as he sang the psalm, and as he grew in wisdom from a boy to a man, Jesus would have seen himself as the fulfillment of this psalm and the one who will provide a perfect righteousness for us and take the punishment for our unrighteousness on the cross so that Peter would eventually write, for Christ, Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, to see God face to face in heaven. That's the end of the matter for the happy man and the theologian Jonathan Edwards called Seeing God Face to Face. He described it as happifying. Happifying. Let's pray. So Father, as we've heard your word uh, this morning, I pray that you would plant it deep within and we would uh, even benefit uh, a hundredfold from uh, the fruit that it produces and and this would spread even in this church today. Uh, We would go away from here wiser, living as Uh, as happy people according to your prescription more Christ-like in all that we do and I ask that you would preserve this church that you would protect this church that you would grow this church and that it would be a light in this place in Jesus' name Amen